Well, good afternoon, Risen Hope Church. Great to be together, church family. Uh, please keep uh, our lead pastor, Tim, in prayer. Tim and Galen are uh, taking some vacation. They're visiting Galen's mom uh, in Vermont this weekend. And then later this week, we have a pastoral a team retreat where we'll be taking time away uh, to fellowship, to pray, uh, to discuss to, in ways that uh, we need to be leading and serving the church. So we would definitely love to have your prayer. So that retreat is Tuesday and Wednesday this week. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be continuing our sermon series, the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 10 through 12 today. And as you guys turn there, I have one more announcement to add. Uh, Joelle Bain is our church planting resident from Jamaica. And we would love, uh, as Risen Hope Church, to send him out as a ordained pastor and elder uh, and church planter. And part of the evaluation and assessment process for Joel for pastoral ministry includes congregational input. So the qualifications for an elder are set forth by God's Word. Uh, it's the, the bar for a pastor is set high, and there are qualifications regarding character, regarding gifts. For instance, let me read just a couple verses from Titus chapter 1. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, <clears throat> self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And we see a similar list of character and gifting qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And as members of Risen Hope Church, uh, you have the joy and responsibility of affirming Joel's call to pastoral ministry or possibly even raising questions. As you have gotten to know the Baines, uh, Joel and Sam and their kids uh, over the past several months, uh, your feedback is important for us as pastors as we discern the Lord's will in this area. So we as pastors, we need your input. We need the involvement of uh, all of our members here. Uh, so please send in your written feedback. You can, you can email it to any of the pastors. You can email it to me, alex at risenhopechurch.org, or you can even bring it in person to the Risen Hope Church office. And we'll be opening up the feedback period between now and April 29th. So please uh, consider, uh, you know, sending in that feedback, which will be of great assistance to us. All right, so Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to take a minute to read our scripture passage and then pray. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, starting from verse 3. <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is truth. You sanctify and change us by the truth of your word as the Holy Spirit opens up our eyes and opens up our heart to who you are. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me, fill us. Give us humble hearts to receive what you have or that we might be changed, that we might fix our gaze more and more on Jesus Christ and live for him more fully. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, The prosperity gospel, also known as the health and wealth gospel, or the word of faith movement is, is popular. And the idea is that God rewards faith with health and wealth in this life. Prosperity preachers will tell you that the health, health and wealth is the divine right of all Christians. It comes as the package, part of the package of salvation. Just as Christ saves us from our sins, He will also save us from sickness and poverty in this life. The formula is pretty simple. You believe, you have faith, and then God gives you prosperity. There's a whole industry built around the prosperity gospel, and books such as Your Best Life, Your Best Life Now hit the bestseller lists and stay there for years. But the question is, is prosperity, is the prosperity gospel, is the health and wealth gospel, is it biblical? Is it what King Jesus taught? Did Jesus promise his disciples their best life now? I'm going to leave you hanging there with that question. Uh, Before we get into that, and look into our passage, I want to just take a couple of minutes to recap, to review, to review where we've been. As I mentioned earlier, we're in a sermon series on the book of Matthew. We've looked at chapters 1 and 2. We've seen the genealogy of King Jesus, the genealogy which ends with deportation and exile and the failure of the Davidic kingship. But all that's going to change with the coming of King Jesus, the King Jesus who will fulfill God's promise to set a Davidic king on the throne of Israel forever and ever. And the name of this king is Jesus, which literally means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. God saves his people from their sins. And in chapters 3 and 4, we see uh, the beginnings of Jesus' public ministry. We see even Jesus goes through a baptism of repentance. And he doesn't do this because of his own sin. Jesus Christ is perfect. He's sinless. But he does this for the sins of his people as our standard, as our representative. Because he identifies with us, he identifies with our sin. And he came to fulfill all righteousness. He was tempted like us in every way and yet without sin. R.T. France writes, Jesus is quite simply different from other men. He can teach in a way that their scribes cannot match. He issues authoritative commands to evil spirits and they come out to illnesses and they are cured, to the elements and they acknowledge his control. He calls men and women to give him an undivided allegiance and they leave everything and follow him. So when King Jesus speaks, we need to listen. And in chapters 5 through 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount, King Jesus is teaching his disciples about kingdom living, Kingdom ethics. What does it look like to be a disciple living under King Jesus in the kingdom of heaven? The first 10 verses are called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, they all begin with blessed are the, 
blessed are the so on and so forth. And we've looked at kingdom humility, uh, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek. And it's the kingdom humility that gets us entrance into the kingdom of heaven. The proud are shut out. We've looked at kingdom desires, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And of these 10 verses of the Beatitudes, three of them, now if you, know, if you do your math, that's 30%, three of these verses are devoted to Jesus telling us what to expect when we live by these Beatitudes. What do we expect when we enter the kingdom of heaven. When we follow King Jesus, getting back to our question posed earlier, when we follow King Jesus and enter his kingdom, do we expect our best life now? I think most of us here would reject the prosperity gospel, but I think for us, deep down inside, because of indwelling sin, we may have a sense of gospel entitlement, that somehow because I'm following Jesus, I'm living my life for him, I am exercising my faith and trust in him that somehow, because of that, God owes me. We may not say that, we may not even think that, but we may, even, we may somehow think it deep down, maybe even subconsciously, that, uh, and even tempted towards bitterness, thinking, well, doesn't God owe me a spouse, children, the career I've always wanted? And what Jesus wants to do in these couple verses here is to correct our perception. To reset, our key, to reset our kingdom expectations. And in these couple of verses, we see that following King Jesus has a high cost but infinite gain. Following King Jesus has a high cost but infinite gain. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. <clears throat> Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is teaching us that kingdom life means being persecuted for righteousness' sake, that kingdom life means being reviled, being insulted, persecuted, and falsely accused. Jesus is teaching us that kingdom living comes with a kingdom cost. Are you tracking with me? Kingdom living has a kingdom cost. Jesus is asking each one of us here, even now, how serious are we about his kingdom? How serious are we about following him? Are we willing to pay that kingdom cost? What if following Jesus costs you your reputation, a promotion, or your comfort? or your money. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians who joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, property simply because they were followers of Jesus Christ. And Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and was willing to endure the reproach, the disgrace of Christ. So if kingdom living looks like that, the question is, do we still want it? Is Jesus still worth it? Our brother Shane gave me the permission to share something he experienced not too long ago. Shane was working sales in a company that was, that was doing well, and he was doing well. Shane was one of the top sellers at this firm. But then he noticed something that wasn't quite right. He noticed some dishonesty that was happening. 
And as a Christian, he couldn't simply go along with what he saw. And now he was confronted with this choice, simply to either simply go with the flow, keep making good money in, in this posi- sales position, or speak up because of the dishonesty. Well, by God's grace, our brother chose to do the right thing. He chose to honor God, but it cost him something. Shane was fired from his job. He lost his job because he wasn't willing to toe the party line. Shane was persecuted for righteousness' sake. And this is a kingdom reality. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is true. We have to wonder why maybe we aren't persecuted more. I'm not saying we need to go look for persecution, pick a fight, or be obnoxious as Christians. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. But maybe one reason is that uh, our sinful flesh, we, we hate anything that makes us uncomfortable. And I think in this country, it's easy enough to put your head down and avoid taking a stand for Christ and His Word. But it's clear, as Paul writes in this, cha- in this book of 2 Timothy, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But maybe another reason that we aren't persecuted more often is that maybe we're not living a godly life in Christ Jesus. And if you're doing everything possible you can to avoid any kind of persecution for being a believer, then you have to ask the question whether you truly are a disciple or not. But why is there persecution? Why is there persecution? Shouldn't the world love Christians? Well, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And he said, if they hated me, they will hate you. The author John Stott writes, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. So persecution is simply this clash of two irreconcilable kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness hates the kingdom of light. And this, as this clash happens, as, the, as heat increases, let us not shrink back and be destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed can also mean happy or fortunate. So happy or fortunate are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, we're not blessed or fortunate simply because we're persecuted. The key is this phrase, for righteousness' sake. And this happens when we identify with Jesus Christ and His righteousness, the Jesus who has saved us from our sins. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul in light of seeing who Christ is and Christ's righteousness, he considers everything is lost, everything is rubbish, everything as, uh, everything as excrement is really that word, rubbish, compared to knowing Christ 
and his righteousness because that's infinite gain. So for Paul and for us as followers of Jesus, Christ and his kingdom, they might cost us everything, but it's infinitely worth it because of what we get in return. We get the kingdom of heaven in return. The kingdom of heaven where everything wrong in every dimension of human existence is made right. So the guilt of our sin dealt with by our king. The alienation that we experience between God and others is dealt with by our king. The weakness of our physical bodies because of disease, decay, sickness, and death is dealt with with by our king. And this kingdom of heaven, this eternal heavenly home is ours. And it's not like the kingdoms of the earth. That means any slight and momentary persecution or affliction we might experience doesn't compare to the eternal weight of glory because the world and its desires are passing away. The physical world is going up in smoke when Christ returns. So that means that car or or that house or that wardrobe or that retirement account, it's all going up in smoke one day. Our citizenship is in heaven where righteousness dwells. And it's a kingdom that will endure forever. So following King Jesus has a high cost. It might cost us everything. And this is so important that this idea is repeated in the next verse, like back to back. It's like Jesus is making sure we don't forget it or it doesn't just go in one ear and out the other. So let's look at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So it's not just persecution that Jesus is talking about. He, he puts out a whole list of other things that we should expect as followers of Jesus Christ, as people who are living in his kingdom. He talks about being reviled or insulted, slandered, falsely accused. Verse 10 and 11 says, we're happy, we're, we're fortunate if we're persecuted, insulted, and falsely accused. And again, the key is this phrase, on my account. See, we're blessed not because of any kind of suffering, but suffering for righteousness' sake, for Christ's sake. And we need to hear this because this will prepare us as the cultural pressures around us increase, as the church continues to take more and more hostile fire. For example, it might cost you to say that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him that He is the only way of salvation. He is the only way our sin can be atoned for, that He is the only true God. That is not popular in this culture. For example, it might cost you to say that God's design for marriage is one lifelong union between one man and one woman. And I say that not because we dislike those with same-sex attraction, but because, because we love marriage. And that's why Adultery and divorce are sinful and against God's plan because it distorts who God is. God is always faithful. He is always loyal. He's always loving. And that's why homosexuality is sinful and against God's plan because it distorts who God is. That God, in the Godhead, there's both unity and diversity. We don't have three persons who are all father, father, father. We have father, son, and spirit. And true Christians, we, we love all people, whether they're peop- people struggling with same-sex attraction or not. 
In fact, our mission statement, the first part of our mission statement is worshiping God and welcoming all. Welcoming all. That means all people are welcome to come to King Jesus. doesn't matter if you have same-sex attraction or not. All are invited to come and partake of the Feast of Salvation. But as we, the church, as we as followers of Jesus, love and defend marriage, we're going to be accused of being bigoted, of being narrow-minded, being hateful, being persecuted for taking a, a firm conviction on truth. And it's happening now. I don't know if you've heard of Jack Phillip. Jack Phillip is a Christian baker in Colorado. And Jack Phillip doesn't bake cakes to celebrate Halloween or racism or atheism. But Jack also doesn't bake cakes to celebrate homosexual unions. And he was found in violation of Colorado's anti-discrimination law. The state court denied his claim for freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And right now it's working its way through the court system, and I think the Supreme Court is supposed to rule on it at some point. But as Jack follows King Jesus and remains steadfast in following his Lord and Savior, he is paying a high cost. So how do we respond when, when persecution comes? What do you do if you're in a situation like Shane found himself in? What, if you do, what do you do if you're a guy like Jack Phillip? Well, number one, don't be surprised. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But in, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The early Christians experienced a fiery trial, and this was no figure of speech. Nero, the emperor of Rome, despised, he hated Christians, and he had his soldiers burn Christians alive. And being a disciple often meant having a death sentence. Martin Luther uh, defined the church as those who are persecuted and martyred for the sake of the gospel. So number one, don't be surprised. Number two, don't be ashamed. 1 Peter 4.16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who paid the ultimate price for being a Christian when he was executed in a Nazi concentration camp, he said that suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. So when persecution comes, let's not be ashamed, but let's glorify God. And let's remembering that suffering is the badge of true discipleship. So number three, don't return evil for evil. Jesus would later on teach in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And even as the soldiers were driving those nails into Jesus' hands and side and into his feet, Jesus prayed, you know this prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And number four, let's look at verse 12. How do we respond? Number four, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our response according to this passage 
is to rejoice and be glad when we're persecuted, when we're, when we're taking hostile fire for living for Jesus Christ. And this, this sounds odd, to the re- odd and strange to the rest of the world because the world mourns loss, right? I mean, because the world only sees what's temporary, what's in this life. But Christ tells us to rejoice in the midst of loss because with spiritual eyes, we see reality as it really is. With spiritual eyes of faith, we see beyond this temporary life to eternity, beyond this world into heaven, and beyond this life to everlasting life. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, by thus persecuting you, the world is just telling you that you do not belong to it. You belong to another realm, thus proving the fact that you are going to heaven, which causes us always to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Following King Jesus has a high cost, but infinite gain. But maybe this idea of reward, this eternal reward, this infinite gain that awaits us, maybe that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. We know that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, so no one can boast. So where do rewards fit into the picture? Jesus here isn't talking about merit, like somehow we earn our salvation through, our, uh, pers- through the persecution that comes upon us. What Jesus is talking about is recompense, God expressing joy and delight by rewarding the children he loves. God's rewards are gracious. God isn't obligated to reward us, but he chooses to give these rewards as a loving father. You can think of it like this. Maybe some of you growing up had parents who rewarded you with hard work. They rewarded you when you did your chores or when you got good grades. Your parents didn't have to reward you, but they chose to reward you because they loved you and they wanted to encourage you to do the right thing. Imagine if your parents gave you a $20 bill as a reward for hard work, for doing the chores, for mowing that lawn. It would actually be dishonoring to your parents to to tell them, I don't care about that reward. I just want to do this out of love. Well, should we be motivated out of love? Well, yes. Should we be motivated by reward? Yes. It's not either or, but both and, because Scripture holds out both motivators for us. Both are motivators. So when God holds out this great reward in heaven, we we actually honor God by valuing the reward that He offers to the children He loves. Let's look at an example. Moses grew up as as a son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he had every imaginable privilege in the ancient world. He had power. He had prestige. He had position. He had the best education. He had job security for life. He had it all in the world's eyes. But Moses himself experienced that high cost and infinite gain of following Jesus. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
Notice what gave Moses the strength and motivation to refuse his status, to be mistreated, to be reproached. It was because he was looking forward to his reward. What Pharaoh could offer was nothing compared to the future heavenly reward and inheritance that awaited Moses. And you can think about our own life, how this plays out. We can tell how valuable something is by what we're willing to pay for it. We might be willing to pay $2 for a a cup of Wawa coffee. Or if it's free coffee day, maybe five minutes of our time. You might be willing to pay $20,000 for a car. But when we're willing to suffer loss, we are showing that Jesus is worth more than the things we're willing to lose. So for Shane, Jesus was worth more than that job. And as we take up our cross daily and follow Jesus, we show ourselves, the world, and God that He is worth everything, that He is worth more than life itself. And if you want to study more, if you want to dig more into uh, the reality of persecution for Christians, like why are we persecuted? How are we persecuted? What are the rewards that await us? I encourage you to read the, the books of 2 Timothy and 1 Peter. The books of 2 Timothy and 1 Peter were written with persecution in mind. Let's look at the last part of verse 12. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When sin entered into this world, two kingdoms were locked into deadly mortal combat. After the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, God promises redemption in and through conflict. In Genesis 3, God says he would put enmity, he will put hostility between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. And there would be these two family trees that would be locked into hostility, locked into warfare continually until the final judgment. And we see that happen right away. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain murders Abel because Cain was wicked and Abel was righteous. So this persecution of all the prophets who came before is is this pattern in redemptive history that Jesus is referring to. Satan opposed God. Moses was opposed by even his own people. Elijah was despised. Jeremiah was thrown into a well to die. And then later on, Stephen was stoned. Peter and John thrown into prison. James beheaded. Eleven out of the twelve disciples died as martyrs for Jesus Christ. And fast forward to modern times, more Christians have died in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. It's estimated in the 20th century something like 45 million, 45 million Christians have died for their faith simply for following and loving Jesus Christ. And let's not forget and let's consider the Lord Jesus Christ himself who always loved everybody perfectly. And the world saw his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness, and couldn't stand it and had to murder him on a cross. If that's what happened to our Savior and our King, what do we expect should happen to us? Do we expect the world to pat us on the back? Do we expect the culture to congratulate us? The world hated Jesus, and Jesus warned us that the world would hate us as well. 
But even though King Jesus came as this suffering servant who died on the cross, was crucified, he rose three days later as King of kings and Lord of lords, who now has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see. He's not a dead Messiah, but a living king who has rewards to give out one day. And he is coming in the clouds with dominion and glory, and all nations and all peoples and all languages will one day bow the knee and serve King Jesus. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom will endure to all generations. The king who died is alive, and he will come back to destroy all of his enemies, all of our persecutors, and establish his kingdom forever. Amen. Author Randy Alcorn tells the story of two farmers. One was a Christian, the other an atheist. Before the season began, the atheist challenged the Christian and told him, well, let's, let's plant the same crops in fields close to each other. You will pray to your God, and I will curse your God, and we'll see whose crops do better. And that's what they did. The Christian prayed to the Lord, and the atheist cursed God throughout that whole planting season. At harvest time, the atheist crops did better, and he ridiculed the Christian. He said to the Christian, you fool, what do you say about your God now? And full of faith, the Christian's response was quite simple. He said, my God doesn't settle accounts in October. There will come a day when God will settle accounts, and it might not be this October, might not be next October. God doesn't promise us our best life now, but our best life later. Blessed, happy, fortunate are those who pay the high cost of following Jesus because infinite gain awaits. Infinite gain. The infinite gain that's more certain than the ground you stand on, more certain than the air you breathe. Following King Jesus does have a high cost, but infinite gain. If you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, thank you so much for coming to be with us in our worship gathering. Thank you for taking the time to learn about King Jesus. We want you to know that you're always welcome here. But you need to be ready to meet King Jesus because he's coming back not as a baby in a manger, but as a king on a white horse who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And you need him as king, and you need him as your savior. Each one of us here, every one of us will have to give an account every sin ever committed, past, present, and future, every moral failure, failure, every thought that we shouldn't have had, every word that we spoke that we shouldn't have spoken. And we're waiting on death row right now, even as we speak, waiting for our appointment with King Jesus, our creator and judge. But the good news of the gospel is that God loved us so much, he didn't want us to perish in eternal judgment because of our sin. God loved us so much that he came in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life we could never live. He died on the cross, the death we deserved, and then after three days, he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and Satan and sickness and death. And now, as ruling and reigning king on high, he freely offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who would repent of their sins 
trust in His work alone, trust in His work on the cross, trust in His resurrection, and surrender to King Jesus. To all who would do that, eternal life is yours. Forgiveness of sins are yours. And you can come today, you can even come today to King Jesus, the one you were made for, the the only one who can satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. There might be a high cost for following King Jesus. You might have to give up being in the driver's seat, but infinite gain awaits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who are going through persecution, for those who will go through persecution, for us as a church body, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us eyes of faith to look beyond this life into eternity, to look beyond the slight momentary affliction and look to the eternal weight of glory. I pray for those who are struggling, Lord, as they suffer for following Jesus, uh, as they are being tempted, Lord God, to discouragement or maybe even bitterness towards you. Lord, I pray that you would renew their minds and hearts, renew their joy, the joy of the Lord, the joy of following our King. In his name we pray.